Good evening, people. How are you doing tonight? Is everyone okay? Oh, come on. Hello, everybody. Are you good tonight? Yeah. All right. How about you stand up and greet four people around you, shake their hands, welcome them. Not just one, four people. Fantastic to see you. Wow. Hey, you're a good-looking group of people, eh? That's all right. Okay, hey, welcome to our second night of the Leadership Seminar. Are you enjoying yourselves? All right, have we got any here who are here for the first time tonight? Oh, we've still got a few who are here for the first time, so you're in for a treat. And we just want to welcome Shane again. How many of you guys have been really enjoying Shane's ministry here? Yeah, we're blessed to have him here. He's a fantastic guy, got some great material, great teaching, and he's a real hard case too. He's got lots of laughs for us as well. So, uh, hey, let's give Shane a great big welcome for the next second night, eh? All right. Well, we'll get going. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, and, and while you're turning there, let me just say this about our, our resource table. We got some really good stuff back there. Um, people have asked me, um, which ones are the, are the bad sermons? Um, I've, I've taken all the bad sermons out because I, I've preached a lot of bad sermons, but if you're smart with marketing, you don't admit it. So what you do is you just conveniently lose those so that they're not mass-produced and then marketed all over the world. Yep. So everything back there is actually good. It's actually really good. Um, and, and it's not because everything... People say, Shane, it's unbelievable. Got your, every CD you have is, is good. That's because I'm in control of what's back there. See? <laughs> And, and so it's, it's very much easy to do it. So let me just tell you about a couple of these things that, um, that I haven't had time to minister too much on. So um, people, they, they go back there and they say, what was that about? Which one was that one in? And so, um, so sometimes we miss some of these jewels. These are my two bestsellers. And, and because, um, because of time constraints, obviously, I can't cover everything. So, um, so these are two. I just, if you don't have these, you need to have these in your hand. These are very, very powerful materials. The first one is called How Great Is Your Salvation? And, and what it does is it covers the 15 Hebraic pictures of salvation. And, and in, the, in the book of Hebrews, it says, How shall we survive if we neglect so great a salvation. And so that's what this is all about. If you don't have that, you need to have, you need to get that in your collection there. And also, this is a six-disc series called Reality TV, which is, um, uh, it could be a confusing title. I probably might need to change it. But what it means is, it's, it, what it's talking about is six CDs on how to live out of the real you. Like, how, how many of us have um, been guilty of living out of an image that we've created that we don't really like, but we live out of it to impress people we don't like? And, um, and, and so we, we live out of this image that, that we don't really enjoy ourselves because we think that other people want us to be that. But then at the end of the day, we don't like them either, and it messes us up. So this is six discs on conviction 
and how the Holy Spirit is not convicting you necessarily of sin. He's convicting you of righteousness. He's convincing you to be who you say you are. And, um, and then it talks about Moses and, and the life of Moses. If you, if you go and read Moses' life, it is a counseling session gone very wrong. That Moses' whole life is one big wrong counseling session. Like there's this one place in Moses' life where he said that a bush talked to him. Yeah. That's a counseling session gone very wrong. Um, his, his, his mother um, abandoned him in a river with alligators. Can you imagine that in a counseling office 20 years later? <laughs> Let's see what happened. <laughs> mom put me in a basket. See, this Moses' whole life, he, he gets taken from his mom's breast and, and, and was put, taken to the um, home of Pharaoh. And he, he's raised in a foreign home with a different god. Um, there's this one place where he premeditated murdered a guy. I looked this way and that and seeing no one, I killed the man and hit him in the sand. The problem was is the next day the sand shifted and yet his legs sticking up out of the sand. Um, counseling session gone very Then the next thing you know, there's a burning bush talking to him, which is another counseling session gone very wrong. And in Exodus chapter 4, it's really interesting. Moses is obeying God and he's going back to, to Pharaoh to say something like, let my people go, something like that. And, and it says that at a stopping place on the way there, God tried to kill him. That God tried to kill him, which is another bad day. It's another very counseling. Imagine that. Like, oh, there's this one day God tried to kill me. Like, this is bad. And, um, and it says that in that moment, Moses' wife freaks out. And he, she holds down his firstborn son, who'd have been like 17 years old. He holds down, she holds down his firstborn son, and she circumcises his firstborn son. And she takes his bloody foreskin and rubs Moses' feet with it, which is like Jerry Springer stuff on <laughs> speed. Uh, can you imagine that? You never hear from that boy again. Can you imagine that? You'd be like, <laughs> see, there's this time <laughs> where God showed up and tried to kill dad. <laughs> and mom freaked out and she circumcised me. <laughs> can you imagine that? Like you never hear from that boy Ever again, ever again. Can you imagine family dinner the next night? They're setting the table. He's like, Mom, put the knife away, Mom. <laughs> and, and, and the picture, the, the picture you get in this story is um, you've, got, you've got God trying to kill a man and a crazed woman with a bloody knife and a foreskin walking around looking for people to rub with it. It's kind of like R-rated weird Jerry Springer stuff, but that was the life of Moses. And so this series examines all of that. So um, who doesn't have this one? That was it? Yep, good. Are you right there? Come on up. Rest of you, please come by it. It, um, it allows me to go all over the world, and um, it's a really cool trade that, that you sow something like that into your own life, and then, um, and then it's a trade It lets me go to the world. It's pretty cool. Because how many of you would agree that like last night's services, they, they need to go to the world. They don't need to be in one place. Well, the only way that can happen is if people like you, if God speaks to people like you, and then people like you obey God, and they say, we want to partner with you and help you go all over the world. That's the only way that can happen. Because otherwise, who pays the plane bill? And um, that sort of thing. So um, um, who doesn't have this one? Yeah. <laughs> Well, come on up. There's no sense of making that big of a fool of yourself. There you are. Is it that good?
that was like um, that was like Seneca, South Carolina hillbilly right there. That was um, yeah. Uh, anyway, in, in all seriousness, the rest of you who didn't have it and put your hands up, um, that trade will allow me to go to the world. And plus, I wouldn't tell you you needed it if I didn't really believe it. The, the stuff in those two sessions in particular are just so good. That'd be nine CDs total, and it will change the way you look at God forever. Okay? All right, so you guys can pick those things up on the break. All right, tonight, I want to start this night. Last night, we talked a lot about tefillah, teshuva, sadaka, and how those three things create trust, and it creates a way of life. It creates a, um, it, it creates a, a, a way of living that, that requires trust. And we talked about uh, temptation, and we talked about things like that. T- tonight, I want to talk about a different type of, of thing that requires the same amount of trust. Now, I've covered this with the staff, and I've covered this with the leadership. So I'm going to cover this very quickly with you because... I can't really teach the rest of this without this being the cover over the top of it. So everything else we're going to talk about tonight has this kind of cover to it. And wow, it is good to see everybody. Our numbers are growing at night, which means that you guys are enjoying it. That's good. Okay. All right. Now, in, 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 in English, all right, and if, you've, um, if you're in leadership here and you've heard me cover this, just kind of humor everybody else for a second, although I'm sure all of us could use a refresher in this because this is different. In English, when we make a point of something, like let's say our thesis is Shane's shirt is blue, okay? So our thesis is Shane's shirt is blue, and let's say it takes us three sentences to build the case that Shane's shirt is blue. It shouldn't, but let's say it did, okay? Then once we make our case and we state our point, we just stop. The Hebrew people do not do that, okay? The Hebrew people talk in what's called reverse concentric symmetry, all right? Now, that is, that is, how many of you are excited about that? Somebody's so excited about reverse concentric symmetry, they can't even hold themselves back. Okay, what reverse concentric symmetry is, is this, is let's say that our main point is called statement D, So statement D is our main point. This is where we're trying to get people to, okay? And let's say that leading up to statement D, we have to make statement A, we make statement B, and we make statement C in order to prove that statement D is true, okay? Now, in English, that's where we stop, okay? That's where we stop in English. In Hebrew, that is not where they stop. That is where they start again. So if you have to make three statements, A, B, and C, in order to get to D, then you have to back out of it in parallel statements. So in other words, you have to make a parallel statement to C, a parallel statement to B, and a parallel statement to A. Does everybody follow me there? All right? So you got A, B, C, and then D is your main point, and then you got C1, B1, A1, which are parallel statements to A, so to, to these statements. So in other words, A corresponds to A1, B corresponds to B1, C corresponds to C1, and D is the center point, okay? All right? Now, what does that look like? A a menorah, which is, a menorah is just one big giant reverse concentric symmetry. And the theology of the menorah comes from Isaiah chapter 11, okay? The theology of the menorah comes from Isaiah chapter 11, where it talks about the spirits of the Lord, okay? The spirits of the Lord. It says, the spirit of the Lord will rest on him. So you got one spirit, the spirit of the Lord will rest on him, and then, it, and then it divides this one spirit into six different characteristics. And it's like spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord, wisdom, fear of the Lord, power, counsel, might, all of this stuff. You, you guys familiar with that? And so you've got these six anointings, and I don't know the order of it, but it's, um, um, let's say it starts with wisdom, knowledge, 
uh, um, counsel, might, um, something else, and then uh, the fear of the Lord, all right? So you got these six sort of anointings in here, right? And it makes sense, like the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, all right? And so these things go together, and these are these anointings. And every anointing we have will fit somewhere in here. But do you guys know what they call the center candle? It's called the servant. The center candle is called the servant. In other words, whatever anointing you have as a leader in, in, in the church of Jesus Christ, whatever, um, whatever anointing you might have, if you're not a servant, it doesn't matter. If you're not a servant, none of the other candles light up. The, 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 the Hebrew people called it the disposition of Messiah. Now, the theology of the disposition of Messiah comes from Exodus chapter 34, verse 6 and 7. And it says this, and you ought to memorize this, and you ought to memorize this, and you ought to say it 10, 20 times a day to yourself till it builds down inside of you. It says this, the Lord, the Lord, he is the compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and forgiveness, God. That is the disposition of Messiah. Later, like David says it, they quote it all the time. Psalm 103, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name and forget not his benefits, who forgives all of our sins and heals all of our diseases. He does not treat us as our iniquities deserve, for he is the compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and forgiveness, God. That everything we do as leadership in God's biggest idea, everything we do in terms of leadership in it has to be done in the disposition of Messiah. In the first century, specifically around the gift of prophecy, specifically around the gift of prophecy, you, they, they had, prophets were tested. So if somebody gave a word of prophecy, the first thing that would be done is they would test it. And they had this bench of three. They had these three guys sitting in holy man chairs. And um, they, they, they sat up above people and they would test the prophecy. And they would have all these questions about the prophecy. And the first question of prophecy was not, is it true? It was not, is it true? The first question of prophecy was, was it delivered in a manner that was consistent with the disposition of Messiah? In other words, did the person delivering the prophecy deliver it in a compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love way? Uh, In other words, if somebody delivered a prophecy, it could be 100% spot on true, but it would be considered false prophecy if it was delivered in a tone that was not compassionate. Not gracious, not slow to anger. In other words, let me say it this way. You can be right, but be wrong at the top of your voice. Mm. That, that when you minister, whether your ministry is singing, whether your ministry is playing the drums, whether your ministry is greeting people on the front door, whether your ministry is parking cars and saying hello out there, whether your ministry is dressing up like Barney and waving at children and handing them lollies, uh, whether your ministry is preaching, teaching, like in, in these meetings... Am I delivering, has everything I said, has there been some challenging things in there? Has there been some things that say, hey, we need to look at how we're living? Like specifically the one about avoiding hell. Like did anybody besides me find yourself in hell? Anybody? Yeah. Anybody in here struggle with anger or calling someone an idiot or uh, things like that? 
I mean, how many, of, how many of us have been challenged? I mean, like a lot of my message is very gracious, and that it should be. I, I want to be very gracious. At the same time, sometimes we need to be challenged to a better life. But the test of what I'm saying is what did I deliver it in a manner that was compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and forgiveness? Or did I deliver it in a prideful, puffed-up manner that made me look better than anybody else? See, see, see we, we have to be... We have to be that. It is the disposition of Messiah. So for the rest of tonight, I want to talk to you about um, demonstration. I want to talk to you about demonstrating God's power. And, and, and I can't talk to you about demonstrating God's power without understanding that no matter what we have, no matter what power gift we have, no matter what we do with what we have, if we do not use our gifts inside the disposition of Messiah, then we miss the point. We missed the point. Now, in, in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, um, one of, the, one of the, the, uh, New Year's resolutions that me and uh, my group made in Charleston is that we never want to be a punchline in one of Jesus' parables. So in 2008, we do not want to live in such a way where we're a punchline in one of Jesus' parables. And, and so we, we, have this, we have this policeman, um, I'm being euphemistic there, she has become the policeman for the whole group with that, and um, her name is Joanne. And, and what Joanne does, let me, let me tell you what I mean by don't be a punchline in Jesus' parable. Like we were all sitting around, and um, one, of, one of the people in the group was complaining, like really whinging pretty bad. And, um, and Joanne had had enough of it, so Joanne said, there was this lady, and um, she was blessed by God, and she'd be in the richest 1% of the whole world, because she owns two cars and a house. And um, she came in and was complaining about her day, while in the same day, people were being raped and murdered and pillaged in Sudan just because of their faith in Jesus Christ, yet she was complaining because she had to wait in traffic. Surely that woman's life will be required of her tonight. And everybody's like, okay, yeah, we'll quit complaining. And, um, <laughs> it's, it's so, and, and so we, we started filtering it all through that. And so I challenge us tonight to really, it's very, very easy. I'm going to go all the way back to the first night we did this, all the way back to last week. It's very, very easy to have Jesus Christ as a doctrine. It's very, very easy. And there's nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with believing the right things about Jesus. Nothing wrong with it. But, but what we need to be challenged to as leaders is to take it one step further and, and have we moved to yoke? Have we moved from doctrine to yoke, to a way of life, to where we're binding people to a certain way of life and we're loosing people to live a certain way? Are we doing that? Now, with that in mind, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, here's what's going on. This was a letter written to a group of first century Christians in a city called Corinth. In a city called Corinth. And, and he leaves and sends the letter back because of reports of some problems, which stands to reason. He goes into an area where um, there's seven or eight different gods. Um, one of the gods in the region um, received worship through um, sexual acts. And so one of the ways they worshiped that god was you'd go to church on whatever day you went to church, and they had temple prostitutes there, and you would just pick up your prostitute, and you'd come in here, and you would worship the god, Okay through intimacy, all right? So there was all kinds of 
uh, really odd sort of things going on there. So Paul goes in there and he gets a bunch of people saved and he leaves and, and he leaves them there to, to form a church. Now, how many of you know that, that is gonna, there's going to be problems with that? There's hairs on that. There's stuff that needs to be corrected. And um, um, some historians say that First and Second Corinthians, which is what we have in our Bible, was actually like either Fourth and Fifth Corinthians, that there was several letters before this that he was trying to help sort them out. And so in First Corinthians chapter 2, he says this. I think it's in verse 1. It says, So it is with me when I came to you that I did not come with eloquence of speech, but I came determined to only know Christ and him crucified. In other words, I didn't come in. Now, now this is Paul, the great orator, the great um, debater, the great. This is the guy who it said, "Hey, he proved he proved from the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ." Although, anytime it said that, he was talking about Jews who already had a working knowledge of Torah. So, this guy is walking into a Gentile nation, a Gentile city, and he reminds them. He says, "Remember, when I came to you, I didn't come to you to sit down and argue." about who was right and who was wrong. I didn't come and sit down and, and based out my doctrine in 19 bullet points and intelligently argue with you. I didn't come like that. I came only to know oh, and to demonstrate a way of life that's found in the cross. That's it. And, and then he goes on, and I think in verse 5, it says something like this. I, he, he repeats himself, which is so Hebrew. He's, like, he's repeating himself. He starts here, and then at the end, he says the same thing. And he, and he says this. He says, I did not come with pervasive words. Rather, I came with a demonstration of God's power. So he, he, says, he says, look, when I came to you, I didn't come with these pervasive words and 19 bullet points and all of this stuff. I came with a demonstration of God's power, which was not really his mode of operandi. Paul's mode of operation normally was to sit down in a group of people and prove that he was smarter than everybody else in the room and he would prove vigorously from the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. Normally, that's how Paul did things. Why did he do things that way? Because he was dealing with Jews who had memorized the whole Torah, who should know that Jesus was the Messiah. And he's trying to convince them of that because they have similar belief systems, very similar belief systems. But Paul changes his mode of operation as a leader when he walks into a situation where this is not going to work. In other words, let me just say this simply, cookie cutter evangelism doesn't work. Sometimes you've got to change what we're doing to reach a different group of people. Now, why would he have to do that? Why would he have to do that? Well, let's think about this. In, in, in the late, I don't know, 60, 50, 60 AD, who was ruling the region of the world that Corinth was in? Who was ruling the whole world? Romans. The Roman Empire was ruling the whole world. So politically, the Romans were ruling the whole world. And they tried something. They tried to put that religious part into it. And they said that Julius Caesar was God. And then Augustus Caesar was God. And then Caesar Tiberius was God. And the problem was, is that all these guys died. So kind of like there was just this, this, there was this uh, mental assent to, yeah, we kind of got to go along with these guys saying they're God, but they're really not God. And there was a whole plethora of other gods. There's a whole plethora of other gods in this region. Let me just tell you about a few of them, okay? So when Paul writes this, here were the people ruling the religious side. The main god of that region was a god named Mithra. 
It was a god named Mithra. And this religion around Mithra was the central religion of the entire Roman Empire, and it started around 600 B.C. So 600 years before Christ, this uh, religion comes forward, and it's ruled by a god named Mithra. Now, here's what the followers of Mithra believed. That their god was born in a cave to a virgin, was worshipped by shepherds, and had 12 followers by which he then spread his message of life over death to the whole world. That was Mithra, 600 B.C. So this religion from 600 B.C. had now grown, and it was the main religion in the city of Corinth. And it was a god who was born of a virgin, worshipped by shepherds, had 12 followers to who he, dis- he disseminated his information to, his, his way of life, And they spread that way of life to the whole world that death can be conquered by life if you believe in Mithra. That was Mithra. Here was another god of the region. There was another god named Addis. Addis. And Addis was born of a virgin in 200 B.C. His followers believed that he was born of a virgin in 200 B.C., that he was hung on a tree, was killed, and then rose from the dead to bring life to his followers. That is the god Addis. Uh, there was another god of the region named Adonis. Adonis. Now, Adonis is the god that every man thinks he is when he's looking in the mirror. <laughs> you ever notice that a woman can be like three pounds overweight and she's like, I am fat. A man can be 50 pounds overweight and still bring Adonis out, man. because that's what we are. (laughs) We're men. Another god was Adonis. Now, Adonis, the religion around Adonis originated in 200 BC as well. And his followers believed that he was born of a virgin. He was referred to as the son of God. And his followers believed that he died and rose again in order to save humankind. That was Adonis. Uh, uh, the, the longest standing god of the region was a god named Horus. Horus. Which, what a horrible name for a god. Horus is the redneck god of deer hunting. <laughs> Actually, it is his name, Horus. And, and the religion that worshipped Horus originated in 1500 B.C., so 1,500 years before Christ, this religion started, and it was, it was worshipped this god named Horus. And Horus was born of a virgin named Isis. So the virgin goddess Isis gave birth to Horus, and so he's the son of this virgin goddess. Uh, when he was a child, foreign kings came and brought him gifts as acts of worship. Horus eventually dies and is rose from the dead in order to conquer death and bring life to his followers. That is Horus. And then, of course, you had Julius Caesar, who died in 17 BC, and 12 witnesses saw a strange star in the sky, which they said was him ascending to the right hand of the bigger gods. So you see all of this stuff. So let's think about this now. Paul comes into Corinth. And if Paul comes into Corinth, And he calls a town meeting. 
And he says, come, I, I, I have something to tell you about my faith. And Paul comes into Corinth, and he brings out a 19-page doctrinal statement. And, and he says, hey, listen, um, I, I, I serve a, a man. His name is Jesus, and he was actually God in the flesh. And here's how I know he was God in the flesh. He was born of a virgin. He was worshipped by shepherds. There was a strange star in the sky that, that, that you know, substantiated his birth. Um, he, um, he actually was killed by being hung on a cross. But don't worry about that. He rose from the dead, and that conquered death and gave life to all his followers. And his name's Jesus. The people in Corinth in first century would be like, that is so cool, us too. Hey, we serve Mithra. That happened to him too. We serve Attis. That, that sounds like his, him too. We serve Horus. That happened to him as well. So your God was born of a virgin. Your God put flesh on and was born of a virgin. There was a strange star in the sky that substantiated it. Foreign kings bringing gifts. Um, he, he was hung on a tree and, and, and he died and rose from the dead in order to bring life instead of death for everyone who follows him. You're kidding me. Us too. Us too. And so Paul, Paul says that his strategy changed in Corinth. And instead of making fine-sounding arguments that Jesus was the Christ, he didn't do that at all. Actually, what he did was he demonstrated what Jesus' life looked like by living it out, and then that gave him the credibility to announce that the kingdom of God was at hand. And the same thing is true with us. Same thing is true with us. Now, now this, this strategy was familiar to Jesus as well. Look at Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10. To demonstrate the power of God within the disposition of Messiah gives us the credibility to speak life into whatever situation we want to speak into. We have went away from that. As a culture, we've went away from that. As, as a church, we've went away from that. Most churches do not demonstrate, then announce. We announce and then hope demonstration comes. Hmm. In Luke chapter 10, I want you to remember this before we read this. Luke chapter 10 verse 6. That Jesus is talking. This is red letters. Jesus is a Hebrew rabbi talking to major followers of him. He's talking to key leadership in his movement. No. Follow me here, because there's stuff here we have to wrestle with. And before I even read it, I'm going to tell you, I don't know the answer to some of it. And that's okay. I'm so glad that I serve a God that I can't figure out all the answers about him. Because if I served a God that I knew all the answers about him, I'd be scared that I had chosen the wrong one. Luke chapter 10, verse 6 through 8. It says, after this, the Lord appointed 72 others to go ahead of him to pave the way. And he gave him some instructions, and this is what he says. When you come into a town and are welcomed, eat whatever is placed before you, heal the sick there, and then announce that this is the kingdom of God. Can you believe that? Jesus Christ, Hebrew rabbi Jesus Christ, is telling his followers when you go to spread this message of the kingdom of God, this is how you do it. Go into a place. Eat, listen to this instruction, eat whatever is placed before you. Now, 
how revolutionary is that? He's telling a bunch of Jews that when you go into a Gentile's house, you are free to eat whatever is placed before you. In other words, this kingdom movement is bigger than your personal propriety. In other words, be the more mature, swallow your pride, and if they throw some bacon down, have at it. So Jesus appears to be giving instructions that would go directly against what the Torah said. Which kind of goes against this whole notion of God would never tell you to do something apart from the Bible. That sounds good, and it's probably pretty good personal boundaries, but it just doesn't work all the time. Last night, we talked about Samson. Was it God's will to continually escalate something into violence? No, but God used the basic human condition to judge the Philistines. The the Bible says, do not marry Gentiles and stone prostitutes. But the word of the Lord came to Hosea saying, marry that Gentile prostitute. Hmm. The, the, The Bible says, the Torah clearly says, do not, this is so good. You ready for this? This is so good. This is revolutionary. Do not touch your own poop. It's a really good plan, right? Yeah. Like when you're living, don't play with your own poop, right? Like don't do that. It's a bad plan. And how many of you would have any problem with that, right? right? Like no one's raising their hand going, wait a minute, Shane, you're putting us back under the law. We should be able to play with our own poop if we want. Mm. <laughs> Leviticus says, do not, do not handle your own body excrement, okay? So don't, in other words, let me put that in redneck terms. Listen, son, don't play with your own poop. That's bad, okay? All right? But the word of the Lord came to Ezekiel saying, I want you to cook food and use your own poop as fuel. You imagine that. You imagine me coming in here tonight saying, hey, everybody, I got a project for us to do. (laughs) On your way out the door, the ushers have a little Tupperware container for you, and we're going to have to all take a little visit to the bathroom. And then we're going to bring it back in here, and we're going to cook ourselves a meal. We're going to see how well this works. Yeah? And God has told me to do that. God has told me to do that. Most people would say, God would never say that. Well, careful. Mm-hmm. If you want to say, hey, I'm not with you there, I don't think God's saying that, that's one thing. But to say God would never? God told the same guy, I want you to do, I want you to lay naked on your front lawn for 140 days. 70 days on one side, 70 days on the other. You imagine driving by my house and... Shane, what are you doing? God told me to. People say, God wouldn't tell you to do that. Really? He did to somebody. Remember in the first century, Peter shows up. He almost, Peter, Peter starts a riot. What did he do? He shows up in a first century leadership meeting. A first century church leadership meeting. And he's chewing on some pork rinds. And they said, what are you doing? He said, oh, Jesus showed up to me in a dream and he told me all foods are clean. Can you imagine 
Can you imagine if like the, the Pentecostal Church World Council was there? And somebody shows up and says, oh yeah, I know it clearly says in the Bible, don't eat pork. It clearly says that, don't eat pork. But Jesus showed up to me in a dream and he told me I could. We would have branded him as a false prophet. But, but because we read about it now, we look back and we say, ah, Peter did it, I can do it. <laughs> we make doctrine out of it. But then we're hypocritical because we say, oh, God would never tell you to do something apart from the Bible. God told people to do stuff all the time that makes no sense. Hmm. We've got to be springs and not bricks. We've got to seek God. You say, Shane, how do you handle all that? I don't know. I just know it's there. And I know in this passage in Luke, Jesus himself is telling 72 people, I'm sending you out to pave the way. And when you get into these cities, eat whatever is put in front of you. Gee, the religious leaders would have had a problem with that. Hey, that goes directly against the Bible. Hmm. He, says, he says, do a couple things. Eat whatever's put in front of you, which is bigger than just eating whatever's put in front of you. We read that command and we go, oh, goody, I get to eat. <laughs> to them, he was saying, grow up, suck it up, be mature, and if what they put in front of you offends you, suck it up and be bigger than that. He says, eat whatever's put in front of you. In other words, fellowship. Then he says, then heal the sick. And after you fellowshiped and healed the sick, then announce that the kingdom of God is here. So, so Jesus' way of growing the church was this. Fellowship, then demonstrate what the life's all about, and then announce. Later on, he says, and if you're welcome, fine. And if you're not welcome... Don't sit around and argue with people. Don't sit around and give your 19 bullet points on while you're right and they're wrong. How many of you know that never works? Don't sit around. He says, simply shake the dust off your feet and respectfully leave. People ask me all the time. They say, oh, I've got this neighbor and they're into something, some kind of denomination or something. What do you think about that? I'm going... I don't have anything to think about that. Well, what should I do to help them? What, what should I do to save them from that? And I'm going, last time I checked, there's not a vacancy in the Trinity for you. <laughs> L- last time I checked, it's not your responsibility to save anybody especially not with sound argumentation. It is your responsibility to demonstrate what the life of Christ looks like lived out and leave the rest to God. Actually, to do it the other way is is counterproductive. And we get ourselves a reputation for being belligerent people who think that we're the only one who is in and everybody else is out. Jesus is very hard on that. I do not know where this passage is, but you know it's in there because I wouldn't lie to you. But Jesus goes into this village in Galilee, and these people in Galilee say, Lord, are only a few going to be saved? And Jesus goes nuts on them. You're like, why? Well, the reason why is in that village in Galilee, it was filled with a group of people who thought that they had the only way to salvation. And since they had the only way to salvation, they were the only ones in and everybody else was out. And so they're trying to get Jesus to agree with them. 
They're trying to get Jesus to agree that they're the ones that are the only ones that are going to be in. And this is what Jesus says. Just the nature of your question tells me you're not. He says, at my marriage table, many will come from the north, the east, the south, and the west. But you who actually think you're in will be shut out because you think you're better than other people. That Jesus' way, I mean, are, are, are we hitting home here? Is, is this not just a story about a group of people in the first century? Isn't, aren't we finding ourselves in these stories? That, 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 that Jesus' way for us to be leaders in his biggest idea is to eat whatever's put in front of us, heal the sick, and then announce. Let's say it this way. Fellowship, in other words, be friendly, then demonstrate what the life looks like, and then announce. Let, let, let's say it this way. Fellowship, and then be respectful to your husband in front of them, and then announce what the peace in your marriage is all about. Um, uh, fellowship... And be loving to your wife in front of them, examining peace in your home, and then announce this is what the kingdom of God does for you. Um, fellowship, and, and, then, and then watch emotional wholeness come to somebody's life, and then, then announce the kingdom of God is at hand. This, this follows through all, all the way through. In, in Luke chapter 7, verse 8. Luke chapter 7, verse 8. They say this, they ask him a question and they say, are you the one who was to come or should we expect someone else? In other words, they're trying to figure out if Jesus is the new Moses. Because remember now, the, the Jews were enslaved for 430 years, then Moses shows up. And then they get out of slavery for 430 years. And then they're put back into slavery. And so there, there's 430 years exactly from Babylon into Jesus. So it all fits together. Everybody was looking for this new Moses. He says, are you the one who was to come or should we expect someone else? And then there's a bit of dialogue there. And then he says, at that time, Jesus cured many sick, demonized, and blind. And he said, go back and tell John what you have seen. In other words, Jesus' way of spreading the word about himself was not sound argumentation. It wasn't, hey, here's all the prophecies from the Old Testament. Here they are. Here's all the prophecies from the Old Testament. And, and, and let me show you how I fulfill every one of them. He never did that. Jesus simply healed the sick, cast devils out of people, and that is hard to argue with. And he says, don't go back and tell them all the prophecies and all the sound argumentation and all this. Don't go back and do all that. Just simply go back and tell him what you saw. Simply go back and tell him what you saw. Fellowship, then demonstration, and then announcement. John chapter 9. John chapter 9. I love this story in John chapter 9. There, there was this guy that was born blind. This guy was born blind. And his disciples say, um, Jesus, who, who sinned that this man should be born blind? Him or his mother and his father? And Jesus says, oh, look, neither, none of them have sinned. Like, no, nobody sinned. He is here so that God may be glorified now. And so Jesus spits, on his, spits in his eyes with some dirt. He takes some dirt and he spits, which is another thing that if we started doing, people would call me a false prophet. And... Um, just like they did him. And he spits in, in, in the dirt and he makes some mud and he puts it on his eyes. And, and the guy has to wash in the pool of, of Siloam and, 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 and he gets healed. And he gets healed. Now, now this creates an interesting dilemma for the religious people. 
Because many people, I'm paraphrasing this, many people saw and, and asked if he was the blind beggar. Like, you're the guy that's been there since birth. Are you that guy? Are you that guy? The Pharisees asked him how he received his sight on the Sabbath, which is interesting, isn't it? They come up to a guy born blind, and, and instead of rejoicing with him that he can see, they say, how did that happen on the Sabbath? Why? Why was that a problem for them? Because their way said that stuff like that didn't happen on the Sabbath, and here's living testimony witness that it actually did. Why? Because they became bricks instead of springs. They started putting God in a box. They started saying things like God would never heal people on the Sabbath because he rests on the Sabbath. They start putting human logic into God. They start trying to relate to a thousand-dimensional God from a four-dimensional world and proud enough to think they had it figured out. Remember this? Hmm. And so he was busting their box up the Pharisees asked him how he received his sight on the Sabbath. Jesus can't, in other words, this is what they were saying. Jesus can't be of God and break the Sabbath, yet he can see. So you've got a real problem. Is Jesus of God or isn't he of God? And, and, and the blind man's going, um, I can see. Um, I, I, can, I can see. And the Pharisees' logic was, well, if Jesus is of God, then he can't be of God because he broke the Sabbath. But if he's not of God, then how can we explain that this guy can see? Which is a real dilemma, isn't it? It's a real, for them, it's just really cool. And so Jesus can't be God and break the Sabbath, yet he can see. So the religious people are divided, and they accuse Jesus of being a sinner. They accuse Jesus of being a sinner. And this whole weird story takes place. I'm summarizing the whole chapter here. This whole weird story takes place, and they say, well, maybe that's not the guy. Maybe that's not him. So they asked him, they said, are you the guy that was blind your whole life, a beggar on the street, and now you can see? Yes, I am. Well, we're not sure. So they go get his parents, and they say, um, Mom, Dad, is that him? And they say, yeah, that's him. He was born blind. He's a beggar. Now he can see. So they are in a, this huge dilemma. So finally, the Pharisees, they come back to the blind man, and they say, you received your sight today by somebody. And I can, kind of see it, I can kind of see it going like this. You received your sight today by somebody. And the blind man's like, I was blind, not deaf. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> and now you can see, yes. And they say, we have a question for you. Was the man who prayed for you and you received your sight, was he a sinner? So they leave this judgment to this guy that was a beggar just hours before. They say, was he a sinner? And I love the blind man's answer. I love it. He goes, whether he's a sinner or not, I do not know. But one thing I do know, I was blind and now I see. That demonstration in life is far better than announcement. That to announce without demonstrating loses credibility. But demonstration, demonstration covers any, any, any deficit in announcement. If things are happening and people are getting set free and made whole and healed and, and, and um, walking out, people who were once mean are now nice and people who were once angry are now peaceful. And that, you can't argue with that stuff. 
And I think Jesus wants to free the leaders in his biggest idea because there's a lot of pressure sometimes on us. We go out and there's unsafe people and they have all these questions and we feel the pressure for having to have all the answers. Listen to me. Jesus wants to save you from having to have all the answers. Jesus wants you to be able to go, I don't know. All I do know is once I was, had no peace and now I have peace and I don't know. Uh, once I was blind and now I see. I, I, don't, I don't know. Um, I, 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 I have a friend who, who struggled with eating disorders and now she doesn't because the power of Jesus. You know, it, well, what's that about? How do you do that? I don't know. I just know she did and now she doesn't. Um, I don't know. <laughs> like, isn't that freeing to be able to say, I, I don't know. <laughs> I don't, I don't have to have all the answers. In other words, Jesus wants to relieve you from the pressure of having to defend your story. That your story is your story. Like Notice in that passage, the religious people are the ones with the problem. They're the ones that want answers to explain everything. It has to be theology and doctrine. They have to have all the answers. The blind man doesn't have the answer, and he's the ultimate frustration to them. In, in other words, in other words... Um, uh, you don't have to defend your story of what God's done for you. I, if anything, Jesus spoke against those who claim to have the answers. And he speaks for people who are journeying with the right heart. The, the, the rabbis said that if we spend two hours here tonight, which we will, if we spend two hours here tonight talking about God, if 95% of everything we said here tonight is wrong, that God is still pleased that a group of people are talking about him. Hmm. Hmm. That we can be freed up from that. We can be freed up from that. In, in Acts chapter 19, verse 37, this is so cool. Um, while, you're, while you're looking at that, there were 613 commands in the Torah 613. So a common question that people would ask their rabbis is this, can you summarize this up in a sentence? <laughs> can you like just give us some kind of summary statement? 613 commands, hard to remember them all. So can you give us a way to keep the whole thing in just one shot? And Jesus, it was a very common question, and Jesus' way of answering that was what? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And in that you fulfill the whole Torah. So, so instead of doctrinal answers, can I just move us to real life demonstration? Like, let, let's ask ourselves some questions. Do you love, do you have a love for God today that is greater than it was yesterday? And, and if that's the case, then you are free to say, I don't know. I just know I love him more today than yesterday. And that life speaks loud. Uh, does your heart break for the things that break God's heart? Do you get angry at the things that would anger God? Which, let me give you a litmus test for that. If it's angering you, it's probably not angering God. God got angry at things like injustice, oppression, slavery, hunger, things like that. He didn't get mad when somebody cut him off in traffic with their donkey. Do you have a greater love for people today than you used to? Are you patient? Are you more patient today than you used to be? 
Do you have an awareness that the things that bother you, listen to this, this is so powerful. Do you have an awareness that the things that bother you really bad might actually be God working things out in you instead of demanding others to change? That when something gets under your skin really bad, it might actually be God trying to kill you. And God is trying to kill you. Do you honor kindness? Do you put other people first? See, if these kind of demonstrations are in your life, people can say whatever they want, but at the end of the day, you've demonstrated the life. It's where we don't demonstrate it that we lose credibility with the whole world. You following me? And, and I love this. In Acts 19.37, this same guy, Paul, he's in Ephesus. And, and the main god, the main god in this region was a goddess named Artemis. Actually, the temple to the goddess Artemis is one of the like, big wonders of the world. It's still there. It, it, it was huge. It, the, the entire economy of Ephesus was built around capitalism regarding the goddess Artemis. So you can imagine, if a guy comes in talking about another god, that's going to threaten the economy of a whole region. People might not um, take too kindly to that. And so they go to throw him in jail. They go to throw Paul in jail for, for preaching about Jesus. But watch what the clerk of court says in Acts 19, verse 37. This is what the clerk of court says about the situation. For you have brought me these men who are neither robbers of our temple, nor have they blasphemed our goddess. So in other words, Paul goes into a town where the main god is the goddess Artemis, and he doesn't say one bad thing about her. He simply lives the life Jesus called him to, a life of compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love God. He, 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 he demonstrates the power of God, and he says, you make your choice. The kingdom of God is at hand. They arrest him to put him in jail, and the clerk of court says, you don't have a case. He has not blasphemed our God, not even once. Where have we been guilty of that? <clears throat> Can we, let's just be real. Where have we been guilty in trying to make Christianity look better to other people? We've downed other people's beliefs. So we spend more time talking about why other people are wrong instead of demonstrating the power of God in our lives. And so we spend all this time talking about why other people are wrong and all the time people are looking at our lives going, yeah, but you're mean to your husband. Yeah, but you're, you withdraw from your wife. Yeah, but... At work, you have no integrity. You leave early and charge your employer full time. Yeah, yeah, but, yeah, but you, you have an anger problem. And, and so we spend all this time talking about why everybody else is wrong. And in the meantime, people are looking at our life and they see no power. Hmm. In other words, um, Paul said nothing against their goddess. He demonstrated the power of God. He did not speak against anybody else. He simply showed what Jesus looked like lived out. See, we love to announce with no demonstration. We love, Jesus is the way. Turn or burn. You'll go to hell if you don't get this right. My doctrine is right. Yours is wrong. No man comes to the Father except by him. We're in. You're out. <laughs> we always announced and demonstrate, but Jesus did it the other way. He demonstrated and then he announced. There's one exception where he did it backwards. 
one exception, and it almost caused a riot, and so he fixed it very quickly. You know what that case was? Remember the guy who was paralyzed? And his friends picked him up on his mat and lowered him in. So they lower him down. Jesus announced before he demonstrated, what did he do? He said, you're, I, I, it might have been a slip up. He said, he said, oh, your sins are forgiven. So he announces before he demonstrates. So here's a paralyzed guy there, and Jesus is calling him clean. And the whole room erupts, remember? You can't call him clean. He's paralyzed. Look at that. You can't do that. And Jesus goes, oh, yeah, I forgot. We should demonstrate first. <laughs> um, what's easier to say? To, to, what's easier to do, to say your sins are forgiven or to say get up and walk? Obviously, it's easier to announce than to demonstrate because who really knows? He says, so that you may know that I am who I say I am, get up and walk. And then in the demonstration, no one could say anything. And as leaders in God's biggest idea, I can tell you this, that the most effective way for you to minister is to demonstrate and then announce. What would the life of our church be like if we demonstrated and then announced? Let me give you some illustrations of that. What would it be like if we helped the poor first and then we announced that we're about the kingdom of God? What what would happen if we healed the sick and then we announced? What would happen if we showed loving kindness and then announced? What would happen if as a group of people we got a reputation for this whole city for being the most loving group of people that's ever come into this place and then we announced? What if we became patient and less stressed and then we announced? What if we demonstrated peace in our hearts and then announced? What if we demonstrated loving families and then announced? What if we demonstrated genuine care for others and then announce? Hmm. In, in a room this size, there is a lot of people here tonight. I'm so glad you came out and I hope you feel blessed by this. But what's your story? What, what's your story? What, what's your demonstration and then you announce? In Deuteronomy 26, it says that um, it's giving instructions on how to give a first fruits offering. And it says every year when you give a first fruits offering, you're to put it in a basket, raise it high, put it in the hands of your priest, and then you are to proclaim in a loud voice, my father is a wandering Aramean. Which just as Hebrew for, my father was a homeless refugee slave. In other words, God built it into their culture to remember where they came from. Because if we don't remember where we came from, we stand the risk of being proud and looking down on people who haven't gotten through what we've already gotten through. Mm. My father was a wondering, Aramean. How many of us need to remember I used to have an anger problem and God healed me from that? So I have no right to look down on somebody else who's just going through the same thing I did. What, 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 what my father is a wondering man in a room this size i'm sure that there's some teenage pregnancies in here somewhere maybe you're 40 years old you're 40 years old and you have a 24 year old daughter that's not hard math to do and you're sitting here and in somewhere you wanted to conceal it but the truth is is you have a story to tell of god's grace and how he got you through that and now you're a living servant of god you can demonstrate and then announce your story is very important my father was a wondering Airman. 
anybody in a room this size ever went to bed at night not knowing how they're going to pay their bills that were due the next day and somehow God came through at the last minute and now you've got more money than you know what to do with but deep down in your heart of hearts you remember when you needed to depend for your next breath on God and now he's come through and you need to remember your father was a wandering Aramean. Where were you blind and now you see? Where were you angry and now you're peaceful? Where were you stressed and now you're calm? Where were you sick and now you're healed? Where were you insecure and now secure? Where were you depressed and now full of joy? Where were you emotionally unstable and now stable? Where were you lazy and now proactive? Where were you selfish and now willing to put other people's needs first? This is the most powerful witness imaginable for healing and wholeness to demonstrate and then announce. I challenge you tonight as we talk about leadership and God's biggest idea that you understand that your most powerful witness is not in announcing, it's in demonstrating. To show peaceful families, to show calmness of heart, to show no stress, to show peace in our hearts, to show financial security, to show generosity, that when we demonstrate, it gives us the credibility to announce. That the greatest credibility is not in walking through the streets of the mall in Napier going, let me give you this track. You're going to turn or you're going to burn. Do you know where you'd spend eternity? Listen, I'm not against all that. I'm just simply saying we can have far greater impact and far greater credibility if we demonstrate and then announce. That that was Jesus' way, that was Paul's way, that was Peter's way. Paul went into a city where another god was the mainstay, and he never said one bad thing about the other god. He simply demonstrated what Jesus was like, and he said, that's it. Mm. They had no standing in court. I bless you tonight to know that we're leaders in God's biggest idea, called to demonstrate and then announce. Let's pray together. Lord, you're the best, and um, we proclaim you king of the universe and realize that we are not, that we're not. Lord, um, we just take a second tonight and repent for where we announced before we demonstrated. And we realize now that the reason there's such a ruckus against Christianity is because of us not because of anybody else it's because we announced without demonstrating we said that we had something other people don't have which makes us sound elitist and then we didn't demonstrate anything forgive us for that lord may we be demonstrators of your life demonstrators of your life would you empower us to do that in jesus name amen amen All right, let's take about a 20, 25-minute break. There's some supper out there. God bless you. We're good. I hope you're very blessed by that. We'll be back in about 25 minutes.